0: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Sustainable Saints. Today, the topic of our show is going to be the upcoming climate strike on March 19th, which is hosted and spread by the Fridays for Future movement. However, before we get into that, I'm I'm going to do my usual 10-minute political update here. So today we're going to do something a little different. I want to focus instead on a theme, instead of just highlighting pertinent news stories. So today's theme is Green Billionaires. So I want to analyze these billionaires that we all know of, you know, particularly Elon Musk, Jeff Bezos and Bill Gates, who have consistently talked a big game about climate change. But let's actually unearth that game and see if they're making an impact. So let's begin with Elon Musk. We all know Elon Musk as the charismatic uh, CEO of Tesla, and he has certainly popularized the idea of electric cars. Whether we like it or not, electric cars will have to be part of the solution. Although in my opinion, it will be more on the margins of the solution, especially when it comes to transport. You know, we increasingly need to move to not an automobile based transport system, but one based on bikes, walking and public transport like train, light rail train and buses. So, you know, he has popularized this idea about moving to EVs. However, he also has some very questionable attributes. So, for example, he consistently disparages government. You know, he's kind of like this libertarian techno billionaire who thinks government just is, you know, meddling and and causes everything to go awry. However, he received a five, you know, in total, he's received five billion dollars from the government, including a, you know, f- like four hundred five hundred million dollar loan when Tesla was going bankrupt. So he owes a lot of his ingenuity ingenuity and a lot of the success of his company to government. So he shouldn't disparage government, but rather Praise it as a you know as a very good partner moving forward so actually he disparaged his government so much that he moved his headquarters from california to the more so-called corporate friendly state of texas however another worrying thing is the labor conditions in his company so there was an effort to unionize in tesla so people you know workers wanted to form a union to you know collective bargain and get more rights because they were overworked, there were a series of work injuries. So it was about time that they, you know, had some type of safety net within Tesla. Musk attacked this effort repeatedly, which is illegal, and he actually got in trouble with the federal government for that. So he's not labor friendly whatsoever. He seems to be the classic exploitative CEO who just wants profit at the expense of the well-being of his workers. Moreover, one former worker alleged that the company's production floor is, quote, a hotbed for racist behavior. So that's even more problematic, is that discrimination seems to be rampant on the Tesla workforce, the work floor, and something that Musk has not addressed yet. Another issue I'd say is his like fantasizing about moving to Mars. And erecting a colony on Mars. And it's like this whole branch of environmentalism to think that we can ruin the Earth and then just take a spaceship and jet off to a more, you know, what they think is a habitable planet or a new frontier for humanity is just like ridiculous. Especially because the only people who would be able to afford to move to this Elysium are the billionaires and not the, you know, the working class or just poor people in general. So... Yeah, that kind of that kind of rounds out my criticism of him. I think Tesla is, by all means, you know, important in the sense that they popularize EVs. However, we shouldn't just take everything that Elon Musk says as kind of like a green gospel and entrust sustainability efforts in his oftentimes crazy, unrealistic ideas. So the second billionaire I want to focus on is Jeff Bezos. I've mentioned this before in the show, but Jeff Bezos essentially launched something called the Earth Fund, where he is channeling ten billion dollars of his own money to fight climate change, you know by all accounts, this is important. you know we need resources to fight climate change to transition to a more sustainable society. However, you know, in the first package of giving, we could see more about what his thinking is, what he where he wants to give this money. so he gave a hundred million dollars to Four of the most established environmental groups, including the Nature Conservancy, the Environmental Defense Fund, the Natural Resource Defense Council and the World Wildlife Fund. So each of these organizations are very much based on the status quo. They really have massive operating budgets, well within nine figures. So it's a bit odd that he is propping up or either, rather rather is quite typical that is propping up this very status quo environmentalism, which is by and large failed, right? You know, we've been consistently trying to change the system from within to tinker our way out of an existential crisis, but it has not yielded any results. Um, you know, a conspicuous lack of funding is given to any group that is focused on climate justice or trying to tackle more of the social economic ills that we're seeing from the climate crisis so it seems like bezos is propping up the status quo and you know the person who wrote this article in the atlantic said quote with a few exceptions all of these organizations evince a pollution-centric view of the climate problem calling for a technocratic solution that will slowly ramp down emissions and By and large, like I said, these have not been proven to be successful. So we have to take Bezos's, I mean, seems like a generous gift with a pinch of salt. Is he doing this more to cover for the immense environmental impact that Amazon has in terms of, you know, perpetuating consumerism, um, ceaseless growth, which is having, of course, a massive impact on the environment. And again, it's this problematic idea that we can just entrust you know, a sustainable transition with these green messiahs who, of course, have exploited people and that's how they've gotten their wealth in the first place. So we should not, you know, just take Jeff Bezos's money and run away with it. Um, you know, a more effective way, would just to be to tax them and have the government, which should be democratically elected, divert those funds, in, you know, in a more equitable manner. So the last billionaire I want to focus on is Bill Gates. So he recently wrote a book called How to Avoid a Climate Disaster. And, and you know, in his book, he says he doesn't have a solution to the politics of climate change. And he launches a lot into this kind of um, nitty gritty side of climate change, um, you know, moving past the normal debates that people have. So Bill Gates is c- perhaps the most classic billionaire we all know. We kind of grew up with him. We know that he invented Microsoft, which is an incredibly famous technological company. However, What gives him the merit to write a book on how to avoid a climate disaster when he has actually never taken climate change seriously? You know, his company and his foundation have both uh, donated money to Republicans, which are the party of climate denial. So it seems like he's kind of covering for past mistakes. And it's also like, why are we giving these people the social license to discuss such an issue when there have been people, activists, journalists, People in the media covering this with so much earnesty that when a billionaire comes in, oh, we'd be like, oh, we just trust him, like the gospel of truth. I think there is an issue with that. Um, you know, while he was writing his book and he was in the prop, you know, in the in the process of publishing it, Gates actually joined a bidding war for the ownership of the world's largest private jet servicing company, which I mean is just horrendous optics. If you want to write a book about you know, challenging climate change while you're trying to buy a private jet service company. It's just a bit ludicrous and it kind of undermines his whole message. I'm not saying that we should, you know, reject what Bill Gates is saying, but we should be very careful in who we should be reading. You know, should we be reading just about a billionaire just because he's a billionaire? Or should we be reading other sources about people who have been in the climate movement for a very long time who have a lot of knowledge? Because it's so important, especially when we're at this precipice where, by and large, we have defeated denialism, you know, most people accept that climate change is reality, and that something needs to be done, that we need to be careful that the people who do have the podium, say the truth, because scientists and journalists have worked tirelessly to popularize, and make sure that this issue is very much in the general public's eye. So it's, it's very important who we read and who we choose to put on a pedestal. So that about wraps it up for me. I just wanted to cover that uh, green billionaire idea because we still need to be very critical of our society and make sure that we hold our leaders um, as well as our societal leaders to account. And yeah, that about wraps it up for me. I'm now gonna pass it over to Diana, who has some pertinent updates. Diana.
1: Hi, thanks. That thanks for that note. That was actually super interesting. I think it's so easy to look at a ton of money going towards something environmental and just be happy about it. But we have to actually critically analyze it. So like the conditions you mentioned at the um Tesla factories and you know how much that money is in the grand scheme of things and what the true intentions of those um billionaires are. So <laughs> that was really interesting. Um so I'm here to talk to you about the seed workshops that have been going on over the well, since January, um, the seed workshops in carbon management and sustainable curriculum design are going well. So two weeks ago, we welcomed um, Thomas Crowther on sustainable forestry. Um, and I think that lecture really fit in perfectly with the previous workshop, which was on carbon offsetting, because it kind of gave the students like a greater perception on the benefits as well as the technical issues associated with afforestation as a form of carbon offsetting. So I hopefully we managed to sort of engage their critical eye um and then in session four last week students were basically split off into their groups um, we have 12 of them which is really great because each one of them has five to seven students Um, And every single group has also been given a mentor to help guide them with their assignment. So their assignment is essentially to create a module from the perspective of their discipline and their year group associated with the St. Andrew's Forest proposal, which if you've listened to us for a while, you'll know about um, and carbon management. Um, And the aim is that all of these contributions uh, will be pulled together and then we'll be able to create a vertically integrated project out of it, which is essentially, it will become a course for students created by the students um, the reaction so far I think has been great um, and I really hope that the students kind of understand how valuable the course is for like the development of a greener curriculum and and also how it's basically a step in education like we're, we're as students we've never been asked you know Um, What specifically do you want to study? What do you want your assessment methods to be? What readings do you want to do? Who do you want to work with? And I think it's really great that we've actually given the students the opportunity to say, okay, well, what do you want and we'll do it. So um, that's been really great. Um, And also, for those of you that haven't been listening since September, um, this SEED workshop has been created because of the St Andrew's Forest proposal. So essentially, we proposed a huge carbon offsetting project for scope three emissions at the university, which is essentially student travel and obviously we have quite a big um, number considering that 45% of our students do have to fly to and from the university but in order for it to be a success uh, we've thought that the students should be driving it forward so essentially there would be like a module in every single discipline um, that and somehow engage those students with offsetting all their travel emissions but in October, we were also nominated for the Yale Univers- by Yale University, sorry, for the Global University Climate Forum, which meant that we had until May to make this really big vision a reality, which obviously wouldn't be possible. It involves a lot of sort of bureaucratic procedures that we basically wouldn't have time for. So we decided to simplify it and essentially create the seed module that you're hear- hearing about today. Um, And as a result of the SEED workshop, we'll be able to essentially create a long lasting curriculum from January 2022. So I think the three of us won't be here, but um, I think it'll be really interesting to hear how that goes or at least be able to contribute in some way to what it is that's being taught. But this video show isn't about the workshop today. So instead, we're going to be talking about Fridays for Future, which is a movement created by Greta Thunberg and has since been practiced by millions of students around the world. Key topic of our
2: discussion today, which is um, Fridays for Future movement, um, and specifically um, climate strikes, um, because the next big global climate strike that is organized by Fridays for Future is actually this coming Friday, the 19th um, of March. 2021 yeah it's actually quite strange to think about when was like the last big one um. and I think obviously the world looked quite different Um. and I know there have been quite a few virtual ones that have been organized by Fridays for Future and I think uh, a lot of a lot has been done by climate activists to try and keep um this on the agenda and push for so to say uh, yeah a green recovery um, in light of COVID as well but yeah let's first dive into let's start right from the beginning and dive into what is Fridays for Future, actually. Um, just to, so I get this completely right, I'll read the definition off from their website. Um, but yeah, Fridays for Future is a movement that began in August 2018 after 15-year-old Greta Thunberg and other young activists sat outside the Swedish parliament and um, for every school Friday um, for three weeks and to protest against the lack of action on the climate code um, crisis. And that basically sparked a movement and some say it's probably one of the fastest growing social movements that um, that really occurred. Um, I think there have been over 14 million people across the world that have participated in those climate strikes and um, I think it has really had a significant impact on on sparking this youth movement again and also on really showing that um, yeah, how important this is. And I think the fact that it's coming a lot from youth, um, from school children, from student activists, is 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 a message as well and to the world to show well, this is not just some future event we're talking about. Climate change is happening right now and it is very much about our future. Um and yeah, I think it's really interesting actually to go onto their website, they have a um they have like a statistic map around like the how many countries have taken place uh, have like hosted strikes? I think there've been like over uh, ninety three thousand strike events since um, since two thousand eighteen um, on climate with over fourteen million yeah participants. So that's pretty um, amazing, um, and it's good to see also that this momentum is sort of kept up. Um we I think the virtual version of it is sort of with a hashtag. Um, no more empty promises so even if you can't participate in in this climate strike because of covid obviously um there's a way to obviously post about it on social media to raise awareness because i think it's really important to show solidarity and show the world that yeah we had to have, be a little bit more quieter in the sense that it's not on the streets but it's still very much in our lives um and um, yeah, we're actually hosting something in St. Andrews on Friday, um, which is a um, virtual climate strike on, on radio, on air. So that's happening at four on Friday. And honestly, everyone very welcome to join in. I'd be interested to see can we um, spike the usual St. Andrews radio um, listenership and just really fill the, fill the studio uh, with anyone who wants to join join the discussion really as well. Um, and it's, it's live on Facebook now, um, both it's, um, on several sites, it's on the ecoactivist journey site, but also on environment subcommittee, um, and climate Action in Andrews, which links me to the whole discussion, um, around, yeah, how, what, what happened in St. Andrews, I guess, as a result of this Fridays for Future movement. Um, and basically, um, what we did in 2019, when we realized this is a group of students here in St. Andrews. Um, We're thinking, well, how about we do something like a climate strike version uh, in St. Andrews? And I think there was some debate around this because obviously St. Andrews is a smaller town. So it was like, well, how about like, it makes more sense to do it in Edinburgh. And I think the first um, students actually went to Edinburgh um, and then said, oh, we should do the same in St. Andrews. Um, That sort of sparked the idea of founding a group which is known as Climate Action St. Andrews, um, but a lot quieter, (laughs) obviously in this last year but we did we hosted um, organized four um global climate strikes in 2019 um one of which was the line in the sand which is quite well known because it was like that iconic image on west sands beach with um over 1200 people who participated and really made that strong image um, of of climate activism on on the saint andrews beach um and yeah um I think well, this would be a good time also to discuss some of the um, core aim. Well, the thing is with the Fridays for the Future movement, obviously it's a grassroots movement. It's very devolved around the, the world. So that means like, like something in St Andrews can just um, emerge. And I think that's, that's a really great fact as well. So, for example, um, the Scottish version is um, youth, youth for climate strikes. And, well, Scottish youth climate strike, um, S-Y-C-S. Um, And that's what um, climate action was related to. And then that um, is obviously um, a sister organization of Fridays for Future. But yeah, let's dive more directly into what Fridays for Future core demands actually are. And I'm going to ask Noah to um, outline those for us.
0: Yeah, sure. So Fridays for Future has five core demands for this upcoming climate strike. Um, I'm going to, you know, introduce each one and then maybe we can just discuss amongst ourselves about it, you know, and maybe that will inspire some debate. So the first is to end fossil fuel investments, which I think is a very important one because it's something that a lot of people don't talk about. You know, we talk about moving towards renewables, you know, moving to wind, solar, hydro, etc. However, it's still an issue is that governments all across the world are subsidizing fossil fuels by a tremendous amount. I mean, there's a recent report by the International Monetary Fund, which found that governments are subsidizing fossil fuels to the tune of $5.2 trillion, which is crazy when you think about it, that government is literally underwriting climate chaos and our own, you know, potential collapse. So it's, you know, it makes you question what is the, the point of government if they're propping up such a horrific industry that is, you know, uh, exacerbating the climate crisis. Um, yeah, I'm wondering what you guys think about that as kind of like one of the, the first primary demands that they have.
1: Um, I, this, is, this is a tough one, and I'm going to have to go with not with existing leadership. So I I think that the UK is just a perfect example of how this won't be possible. I mean, in December 2020, so just a couple of months ago, Boris Johnson at the Climate Ambition Summit uh, basically said that he will commit to ending taxpayer support for fossil fuel projects overseas as soon as possible. Um, And basically that is... I don't know, the recognition of the government um, working to support the sector's transition to low carbon energy. But I mean, it can be done. I know it sounds so bad, but I feel like it can be done a lot easier and quicker and and it's not being showcased. So it kind of I don't have a lot of faith in um, that, unfortunately, becoming a reality, at least until we have more um, environmentally conscious individuals in power. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think it is pretty disappointing, especially when you look at Boris releasing his 10 point green industrial revolution plan, just as the UK is planning on opening the first coal mine, you know, in decades, which is just completely, you know, it it makes no sense. And I, I think it's a general issue that a lot of world leaders pay lip service to climate change is that they talk big you know, I say this is an existential crisis, we're gonna meet it with real urgency. That's what they show on the surface, but then covertly oftentimes they're doing the exact opposite. They're perpetuating the status quo, they're funneling money into the fossil fuel industry. And of course, one primary reason as to why they're doing that is that they themselves are funded by the fossil fuel industry. And I think you especially see that in the United States is political candidates are bought by corporate interests. So fossil fuel companies will donate to their campaign and once they become elected, they then pay them back for that initial campaign donation by being very friendly in terms of like industry standards and even promoting fossil fuel extraction. So I think when you cut the money line almost, make elections publicly financed as a core component to help actualize this first demand.
1: Yeah, no, I completely, I have to definitely second that. I think a lot of it stems from leadership. And I kind of hope that. I feel the current youth is very, um, is very engaged and they kind of, they won't stand around for these bureaucratic procedures and these, I don't know, these niceties and they hopefully will actually sort of stand in the way saying no to any form of like dirty investment in their campaigns and hopefully move forward that way.
0: Yeah, Leah, do you have any opinions on that?
1: Yes, um, I, think, I think that all of those points
2: that you guys raised are really great. Um, it is a lot. I think what what gives me quite a lot of hope is that there are people watching, and I think government is aware of this. Um, so is business, actually. Um, so and there is a wide recognition, I think, even though it's not always said, that they know that they can't, like they wait. There's certain, like, there's a certain extent to which this is dele- There's a delegitimizing effect if they if um. Yeah, if, if governments don't act, we know that there are people um, across the country that are more concerned. And we see this in voter results as well, that this is a concern and at least it's coming into the public discussion. The question, of course, is like how quick is all of this going, right? Like we're seeing changes happening, um, but we, we need we need really a big scale um, change. And I think that's sometimes like the scary part when we look at all of this is that um, we just need these massive changes and we need them fairly quickly Um, and and that requires like we talk a lot about wanting to change things in the world but I think when it really actually comes to it people are quite adverse to like having to change things in their life or how systems work Um, and politicians I think are aware of this Um, so and that, I think, creates this pol- these polarizing situations. I mean, with the rise of climate activism, we're also seeing a rise in right-wing movements and things like that. So, yeah.
0: Yeah, no, that's a really good point. Is It kind of brings it back to what I was saying, that politicians talk big, and then they don't actually make the changes that they were elected to do. And it's an issue that is so pressing. And I think, you know, once we have leaders who are elected and in their... You know, in their campaign, they say, oh, we're going to tackle climate change. It's still up to activists and the general public to keep the coals like burning at their feet. And, yeah. You know, make sure that they're going to follow through with this. Because mm-hmm. too many times we've been let down by politicians who said they will actually do something and then they don't do anything. Or worse, they say they are. And then meanwhile, they're just sabotaging, you know, climate efforts by, you know, propping up the fossil fuel industry as a prime example. Mm-hmm.
2: And I think, I guess, sometimes the hard part to realize as a climate activist as well is like, this is not something this that will end, like like accountability and really speaking up about this is like, it's a lifelong journey. And like, we're just going to have to carry on holding governments and people that are elected accountable. That's how democracy works. So yeah. it just won't work any other way because that's when money comes to speak and interest comes to, like, yeah. come to speak. So it is really up to like, like, in a, in a hard way sometimes because, like, it, it feels frustrating that so much of the pressure is also, like, on young activists, on, like, all of society really to drive and push this, like, step by step. <laughs> and uh, it sometimes can feel like it's a lot. But I think when we see, like, the power of really – if it's a lot of people coming together, like, that is powerful. And if anyone's ever been to a climate strike, like, that feeling of, like, being surrounded by people who sort of share this passion for all this, yeah, this this just this common sense of like this is our home, this is our future, and we're standing up for it. And I think that's quite a powerful feeling to to be part of.
0: Yeah, that's very well said. Um and I think, you know, it's unfortunate that we even have to keep our leaders accountable that mm-hmm. they won't just follow through on their promises because I think our democracy i mean i'm obviously from the united states so i'm speaking in that context but i think this is more of a universal problem is that so much of the democracy we cherish does not actually serve the people but it serves corporations because they're so bought up by special interests that they do not legislate in the interest of the people they legislate to protect companies and to make sure that they have an ever-increasing bottom line and it's such a massive issue And we need to somehow stem that tide. And it's not only fossil fuel companies either. You have to look at the big financial players that are actually giving money to the fossil fuel industry. So, for example, JP Morgan, you know, financed the fossil fuel industry by $196 billion since the Paris Agreement was signed in 2015. And meanwhile, of course, they talk about corporate social responsibility and greening initiatives. It's like, how could you possibly square that? It's more than cognitive dissonance. It's like, This pernicious mentality that you can just say one thing and then do another so yeah but just to get back to the core demand if we want to solve the climate crisis we're going to have to stop digging the hole in the first place and by digging the hole i mean like financing the fossil fuel industry we just need to stop doing that like immediately and that's the same with subsidizing kerosene which is used as jet fuel like we need to stop financing our own collapse because that is just you know if you if you talk about decarbonization this whole societal transition it's going to cost so much money it's obviously going to be worth it but we need to stop you know putting the resources in the opposite direction
2: yeah and if you look at bank investments like like the biggest banks like jp morgan or even in europe what's at barclays like there's just like you look at this and there's so much money in it and these companies and fossil fuel uh, this fossil fuel business couldn't run if it weren't funded. And uh, it's quite sickening to realize that there are people who morally funding the destruction of the planet without like realizing that this is not even the future anymore, right? There's so much other things that you can invest in, like the alternatives to like with green energy and with, yeah, with other solutions. But yet it just continues to, to be funded um, for the yeah. benefit of the few.
0: Yeah, very well said again. Um, Okay, so that again, so the first demand they have is to end fossil fuel investments, which I think all of us as co-hosts adamantly agree is a necessary and completely logical first step. The second demand is to establish annual binding carbon budgets based on the best available science in the IPCC proposal that gives us a 66% chance of limiting global warming to a relatively safe 1.5 degrees Celsius. Um, You know, and they also say that these budgets must take into consideration the common but differentiated responsibility among countries in the global north and the most affected peoples and areas, and must not be reliant on possible future negative emissions technologies. I actually think this is perhaps their most interesting demand is because, you know, I think we're seeing a lot of policy or climate targets aiming for net zero by 2050. So, I mean, 2050, that's like 30 years in the future. What I wanna see, and I think Lay, I've heard you say this before, is I wanna see decarbonization happening, not in 30 years or, or at some distant point, but like right now. Like, I wanna see annual targets, like how many, how, like, what is your emissions cut gonna be for this year, you know? Cause I, the emissions gap report that the UN releases every year says, you know, we need to limit our warming by 7% each year. And the complexity, of course, is that there are a few key players in the global north, which have emitted so much carbon into the air. that it's also up to them to decarbonize much faster. You know, the biggest per capita historic polluter is the United States. And then, of course, you have Great Britain, which, you know, started the Industrial Revolution and spread that model all over the world, as well as Europe. Um, so it's up to those very wealthy companies or sorry not companies countries that got their wealth from you know carbon capitalism and industrialism to you know cut their emissions immediately like i, want, I just think that's so important is like this crisis demands immediacy and urgency so i i, I think it's like you almost like it's, it's like a cop-out by saying oh in 30 years it's, we're gonna be net zero but like no how are you gonna do that like how where are the steps that you're gonna implement to get there so yeah um Diana, maybe you want to offer some thoughts on that and then Leah. Yeah, Leia, you
1: can go. yeah I, I think you said it very well. Um, going specifically on the um, taking into account historical responsibilities, I think this essentially crushed so many of the summits before Paris. It was, I mean, a lot of what you said, it was, uh, there were so many states not willing to um, take responsibility for their past and they believe that this was like a collective problem and we should all be tackling it equally together and I think this would actually lead to more, um, more, more trouble than it's actually worse worth, if that makes sense. Um, and I also think that if we did establish an annual binding carbon budget, we'd face exactly the same issues that we're facing with every other environmental agreement, and that's issues of transparency. We don't actually know how, I mean, obviously you can rely on the science, but we also have the science for everything else to do with climate change, and there's still people choosing not to believe it. So I think, I think transparency is going to be a huge a um, barrier to creating, maybe like creating it on a global scale. Um, I think, as, as, uh, sorry, like third point as well is that I think countries themselves have struggled to create their own carbon budgets. I mean, if you look at um, look at the differences in those that have decided to, you know, implement carbon tax and carbon offsetting, and then the others that haven't, it's there's such a large disparity that I don't think that it could work on a global scale, Um, and I also just, I don't think, I I would love to see it happen, but I don't think that many would agree to it. It's it's like an infringement infringement of sovereignty as well. I think that is very big, um, I don't know, a very big barrier to creating these, carbon budgets and it is a shame because I mean if you look at overshoot day so um congratulations to Noah um with the U.S. actually reached well reached overshoot day on Monday so um but I mean that's never affected any country ever we have these figures we have you know where where does supply um end and demand basically exceed and um still like that's like it's not even spoken about so I just as, as great as it is, I really do not see it happening at all, unfortunately. Sorry to be pessimistic.
2: I think the, the question of timing um, that Noah raised earlier is quite uh, an important one with regards to this point. Um, because I think a big political problem that we see with the climate crisis is that... Um, well, politicians aren't really there to bear to bear the cost, so they can say, "Okay, let's do this in so and so many years," but this is never within their, um, yeah, their time period that their leaders for. And I think uh, that's a mistake, and I think that needs to be changed. Climate targets, yes, why they need to be a long term goal as well of like when can we reach net zero by or net emissions by. Uh, it's more than that is it really about saying okay well what are our goals for every single year and um and i think maybe it is difficult to have this global um uh, yeah this global agreement around this. and i think that makes it this quite politically difficult um, but i think there's a lot that can be done um, by countries themselves and by citizens holding uh, their countries and their leaders accountable and saying uh well what is happening um what are you doing really um and then really also pushing for that um this this notion of climate justice as well um because like noah pointed out earlier it is those countries that have contributed the least to climate change that are suffering the most under the effects of it and um there's a lot of responsibility um countries in the global north industrialized countries. Um, um, and Western countries play in, in, in actually um, bringing about the climate crises and, and, and making it, yeah, just perpetuating it further and worsening it. And I think um, we need to have a discussion around that and to really say, what can we do?
0: Yeah, no, I think those are really good points, both by Diana and Leia. Um, I think actually one thing that I would add to this target is, you know, okay, so they're saying that each country should have a goal to cut their emissions by a certain amount per year with the global north obviously having to de- decarbonize much faster considering their you know, ecological debt. I think something that should be added on is also that countries in the global north should in fact be sucking out carbon. You know, They should have goals, how much t- carbon am I going to take out, uh, out of the air per year? And this is something I've realized more recently, is that even if the world hypothetically in fantasy land were to stop emitting any carbon tomorrow, there would still be far too much carbon in the atmosphere. I mean, we're at like 415 parts per million right now in the atmosphere. That's a level not seen in four million years. And it's rapidly approaching a level not seen in 50 million years. So whether we like it or not, some type of carbon sequestration is gonna have to be you know, implemented, whether that's afforestation or you know whether you're gonna suck this out with large fans. Like there's this company in Switzerland called ClimateWorks which is working on literally sucking carbon out of the ambient air, then turning it into mineral rock and injecting it into the bedrock. I personally do not like negative emissions technologies. I used to think that they're a cop-out, but we're at such an emergency level that they're gonna have to be more viable and they're gonna have to be part of the solution. So I think it's important that the Global North, along with these decarbonization goals, also has like carbon scrubbing goals, like how much carbon is gonna be taken out of the atmosphere which which also Global North countries had a vast outsized impact on emitting in the first place. So I think it might be interesting to see how this catches on more and more, because I think it's something that's still very much shunned by a lot of environmentalists. You know, they think this whole philosophy, which I agree with, is that we can't out engineer ourselves out of this problem is still a very, very viable one, but it's somehow the carbon has to get out of the air. It's just like a thing that needs to happen. Um, Yeah, so I think that's that's interesting. Uh, Yeah, so that is the second goal is to establish annual binding carbon budgets. The third goal is to design climate policies that consider the welfare of workers and the most vulnerable in society. So I think this kind of gets back to this whole idea about climate justice: is that wealthy people, wealthy countries, wealthy corporations have had a substantial impact on degrading the environment and you know there's a stat that says the global wealthiest 10% emit 50% of carbon emissions so it's up to countries and policymakers to design climate policies so that we first protect those who have who've had the least to contribute to the problem so we can't just leave poor and working class people out to dry and like The UN actually released a report, I don't know how long ago, maybe two years ago, warning of an actual climate apartheid, where we get into a situation where only those with financial resources can actually secure the provisions to deal with a warming world, while the working class, while poor people are basically left to fend for themselves. I mean, that's kind of like dystopian. But this whole idea that wealthy people will be able to buffer and insulate themselves from the impact from the crisis that they cause in the first place. So yeah, I'm I, again, maybe Diana, you want to offer some thoughts and then Leia you can go next.
1: Yeah, I'm gonna, I actually think so. I know I've been quite pessimistic this entire conversation, but I think that these climate policies for worker welfare is actually uh, something that can not easily be achieved, but something that is very possible, especially in like the near future. I think I uh, to bring up like the pandemic it certainly has showcased that there is a that there is a healthier way to balance work life um and a healthy attitude obviously we're we're talking about like middle class here but um for the most part I definitely think that it you know it has show lighted it it has highlighted different ways to go about what we perceive to be normal so I think that this could actually help move it forward especially because it isn't it doesn't involve science it doesn't involve every single country in the entire world it doesn't you know it doesn't have these big it's not a big overarching umbrella issue like these are people's thoughts and feelings as well and I think it'll be a lot easier to change that especially with um NGOs um you know movements um worker movements like that sort of thing I think this particular um, point in in Fridays for Future's planet could actually be very much possible. Yeah, I, I think I
2: think it's, 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 it's all of what you said is really both of what you said is really encompassing. Um, I think going back to that notion as well, I was thinking um, about um, well, that we talked about just now with regards to carbon like emissions in, in the atmosphere. Really interesting in uh, David Attenborough's book, he sort of looks at like every year, sort of saying which, what are the emissions. Um, I think it starts in like the first chapter with uh, when he was 11 in, in 1937 with like 280 parts per million. And I think a really interesting thing that Fridays for Future started doing is sort of uh, this activist initiative when they talk to one another so say of, to sort of say, oh, I was born in this year and that. Those were the car, like the the cup like the parts per million in the atmosphere, um, in my birth year, and this is where it is now. And I think that's quite like an interesting way to like put it, um, in just to highlight sort of how how quickly climate has been changing. I think that also goes to show um that like unprecedented challenge, really. That you know when people say, oh, climate change is natural, yeah, there are some aspects to climatic changes on earth that are natural, but they're not natural in the, the scale that is happening. Anyway, I'm digressing from this point, but um I think it is really looking at we need to look at that just just transition, I think fits a little bit into this point as well. I don't know what you guys um think, but like looking at how can we make sure that um we're creating like this is actually an opportunity for new jobs and people being reskilled, I guess, um, to take on um and- in the carbon economy, I guess.
0: Yeah, that's also a really good point. I think of President Biden, you know, he said when he thinks of climate, he thinks of jobs. And I think there's certainly kind of an issue with that, but also it shows that there is real opportunity, you know, in moving into a low carbon society, is that, you know, oftentimes we hear about the fossil fuel workers being left behind, and that should not happen whatsoever, you know. Fossil fuel workers should be part of, like Leia said, a just transition. You know, the worker who is laboring today on an oil rig could be working on a solar farm tomorrow. Um, of course, the government needs to provide them with the resources, the education to retool their careers. Unfortunately, we cannot have them, you know, perpetuating this industry. And it's not actually the fault of the workers; it's the fault of the executives who have gotten us to this position in the first place. So, I think it's definitely important that. All climate policy looks out for that, and it's part of the Green New Deal, which is a popular legislation in the U.S. and other countries. And it's also actually factored into Germany's decision to ban coal by 2035 at the latest, and perhaps earlier in 2030 if I'm if I'm memorizing that correctly. But you know, they made it a big part of that policy was that the coal workers will be part of a just transition, so they're not going to be left out to dry. Um, and I think that is really important because we can't leave anyone behind in moving towards a sustainable society. It's going to require everyone to commit to this idea. Uh, yeah, so that's, that was the, the climate policies that I consider worker welfare. The next point is to protect and safeguard democracy. So we kind of touched on this earlier, the idea that democracy is increasingly beholden to corporate interests, that they don't actually listen to citizens. So what Fridays for Future is actually calling for is a deeper democracy, where government is very much predicated on what the citizens want. And this actually reminds me also of another social movement, Extinction Rebellion. And Extinction Rebellion has three demands, which is to tell the truth, to act now, and then to go beyond politics. And in their idea about going beyond politics, they want to erect a citizens assembly, which is basically leaving a, leaving the policy to the people. So the people are aware of the issue, but then you know, they also come up with the solutions, of course, with the help of experts and people who know the issue very well. Um, you know, I think a deeper democracy will be very important because people by and large actually accept climate science and they know something needs to be done. Um, yeah, so maybe down a, just again, and then, and then there you go as well.
1: Um, I think this is quite a spicy question, and to me, I don't think it comes from democracy. Um, <laughs> I, I kind of, I think creating democracy in more places is just going to lead to more war, and you know, less chances of actually achieving global peace. At least right now, um, hopefully that does change. But um, I think it kind of, it doesn't, it doesn't come from democracy. It comes from green leadership. Um, so if you take Singapore for example I mean that's the cleanest country I've ever been in before and um, they're even considering building a floating solar farm just off of like their basically their mainland and that's like an authoritarian government so yeah to me I think that it's a bit far-fetched to say protect and safeguard democracy I mean yes maybe the ones that already are democratic should be protected and safeguarded but I don't think it should be enforced Um I think if it works, <laughs> if it works in some countries that aren't democracies like green leadership, then it should be kept that way but I might be being a little bit divisive there.
2: I actually really like that point, I mean it's wonderfully controversial but I think I agree to an extent it's not really um, about democracy, we can see that um, yeah, it's a lot about. I think it's a, a lot about education. Um, and if we have a population that's been educated a lot, not been educated a lot about climate, then um, this is going to bring up a lot of divisiveness as well. And we can see that in democracies with like those strong right wing movement and um, and I think a lack of understanding of what this actually means for our future. Um, and I think sometimes. Um, we need to question about like why is that and why is these things coming up in in democracies specifically and what can we learn from countries that are actually taking it maybe a more authoritarian approach or so i think it is a lot about um leadership in that sense but it's also a lot about education and really making sure that we're building structures and educating people because i think something really shocking that um i heard about from uh from my, from, from my dad who's a professor and he, he was asking his students and um, sort of to give a definition sort of of education and, and the the meaning of education and then one of the students came and said well um, education is for the industry uh, and it sort of cited that uh, and my dad was like oh okay wow that there's really a definition in some countries to say that uh, that some people see okay education is just for the job market and so in some ways if we look at that that i think it it is it's not like I don't know about you guys I mean I was taught a lot about climate change well I was taught about climate change in at school but I think the limited action around like what can we do was very much around like oh I guess recycling and um, yeah, fossil fuels industry is not great, but like there was a very limited aspect in terms of like, what does this really mean? And what does that, like what kind of changes do we need? Like those aren't the things that are talked about. And I think that's where we see some of the new movements and um, campaigns that are coming out, such as like teach for future Scotland or, or some all along those lines. So I know this is digressing slightly, but I think it's not just about democracy necessarily, but maybe, within democracy, the structures and the societal structures that we have around education about um, people's knowledge and understanding of climate change. And I think that needs to be strengthened in democracies. But yeah, like I said, Singapore and other countries in the world can actually take a stance and do this effectively. So Yeah,
0: well, I think those are both really important points. Um, well, the one thing I will say about Singapore, which is actually really interesting, I went on a semester abroad and I'm not gonna take up too much time talking about my semester abroad, but so Singapore up here is very green. Um the city is extremely clean of course, but it's also the I mean, I'm quoting here, the undisputed oil hub of Asia. So essentially what they're known for is refueling bunker ships, so big ships that carry a lot of goods with fuel. So a huge part of their economy is actually predicated on fossil fuels, which is extremely worrisome. But I mean, in, in terms of the larger point, democracy, yeah, I think it's so important that democracy has not been doing very well in terms of combating the climate crisis. And the thing that is now I'm not democracy appealing, but interesting about more top down, I mean, authoritarian countries, you look at China as an interesting example, is that they can make things happen like that. I mean, it, it doesn't require any legislative debate, it does not require any partisan bickering, it just happens. And when you're in such a tight 10 year window to limit warming to 1.5 degrees, that can be, you know, that can look good. Of course, there are issues with human rights infractions that the leaders are not accountable, that on the one day they can be very much focused on climate change and the next they don't care at all. So once you have those hierarchical structures in place, they can be easily corrupted. So yeah, it is an issue. It also comes down to education that I think education should be much more of an emancipatory tool than, you know, like you said, you know, education is not about shaping people to become good, you know, good workers who just sit idly from nine to five. That's not the point of education. So I think there are a lot of interesting debates. So, but we're obviously we're running out of time. I'm just going to mention the last demand by Fries for Future, which is to make ecocide an in international crime under the International Criminal Court. Um, that's really interesting, that's been gaining currency recently. I read an article a couple of weeks ago or just last week ago that there is a real movement to get this done, um, especially when you consider climate villains like Bolsonaro in Brazil, whose policies you know, of deforesting the Amazon will have a huge carbon impact and that impacts everyone, of course. So ecocide is not only about safeguarding species, but also safeguarding our own prosperity. So let's see if there's any traction on that. Um, Thank you, everyone, for joining us today. It was a really interesting show. Um, If you can, maybe support the strike on a digital fashion, of course, maintaining social distance and following all the COVID protocols. That would be great just to show that this is an urgent crisis that demands real concerted action right now.